Acts chapter 6. One of the privileges we have as a church is uh, being part of a church allows you to be on the front lines of Christ's work on, on earth. We get to see up front preaching of the gospel, the power of the gospel, individuals being saved, baptized, lives being transformed. It's an incredible privilege that, that we have. Specifically at Calvary Baptist Church, over the last couple of years, we've had the wonderful privilege of seeing a growing church. A church growing numerically, families expanding, but also disciples coming from other churches and uh, that they've been a part of. But we've also seen individuals respond to the gospel, being saved, being baptized, being added to the church. Wonderful privilege, but with that growth also comes sometimes some difficulties. Growing pains, if you will. As the church grows and expands, one of the things we must do as a church is to seek out God's design for the church in the New Testament and ensure uh, that we can accommodate that growth uh, by ensuring we're doing church according to His design. We see this very same issue in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 2, we read about the birth of the church, remember, at Pentecost. The disciples of Jesus obeyed Christ, the risen Christ, by going to Jerusalem and by waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. And remember that story that as they prayed, then the Holy Spirit descended upon them. Uh, There's a mighty wind, the appearance of fiery tongues, and the Bible says that all the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all spoke in languages that they had never learned before, the mighty works of God. And there was visitors there, thousands of people who had come for the Feast of Pentecost, who heard this and were amazed by it, and they tried to figure out, what does this mean? That's Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. And there were signs, and there was miracles that were being produced, and there was the powerful preaching of the Word of God. And that really characterized the early church. There was evidence of Holy Spirit fullness in it. Uh, how, we, we often emphasize, though, in Acts chapter 2, the miraculous, right? Speaking in tongues, speaking in languages they'd never heard. But there's something else going on in the early chapters of Acts, which was wonderful evidence of the Holy Spirit fullness of the church. The Bible tells us that the thousands who were converted as a result of the apostles' preaching were added to the church, and then they continued in unity. They happily sacrificed for one another. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that they continued together in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers, to the point even where they're willing to sacrifice for one another so that nobody among them went without. That was the early church. Interestingly, though, although those 3,000 who were saved in Acts chapter 2 were all Jews, there were still differences among those Jews. Some were Hebrew, some were Aramaic speaking, some were from Judea, uh, some were from the dispersion. There were different groups among them. There were Greek-speaking Jews, they were Hebrew-speaking Jews. And with that came some cultural barriers, even though they were all Jewish. But even those who had those differences dwelt in unity. The love and unity 
which developed among such a diverse group of people, was as much an evidence of the Holy Spirit's work as were the miracles. However, those conditions wouldn't last forever. Let's read together Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. It says, Now in those days, these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. This is within the church. Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Oftentimes, widows in the first century, when it came towards the end of their life or uh, became elderly, would shift and move to Jerusalem uh, so that they could live out their final years there in the holy city. And so there's often a high population of widows uh, within Jerusalem. The cultural differences and language barriers which existed among the Judean Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews of the dispersion Uh, Those differences were kind of exacerbated in the early church in this passage, because why? The Greek-speaking Jews felt that their widows were being neglected by the church. Now, within the synagogue system, it would have been the practice that the synagogue would care for those women uh, whose husbands had passed. And when the church was born and some of these widows became Christians, the church then took on that responsibility to care for those widows. But in this passage, what we find is there's a division. The Greek-speaking Jews feel like their widows are being neglected. It seems, however, I think that this oversight here in Acts chapter 6 was more a result not of prejudice, not of the Jews saying, oh, we don't need to care for those Greek-speaking widows. I think it's probably more simply the result of growing pains. The church was growing at such an exponential rate that there's some practical needs that kind of just fell through the cracks. And what I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that we at Calvary Baptist Church could face those same dangers. As Calvary goes, uh, grows, so too we must uh, have a deliberate, uh, proactive approach to dealing with practical needs and maintaining right priorities, just like Acts chapter 6. So whether merely the result of growth or the result of lingering prejudice among the Jews, the unity of the church was threatened here in Acts chapter 6. Remember we said in Acts chapter 2, they all continued together in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer, just wonderful, idyllic situation, and now that's in danger. So how's the church going to deal with it? Well, the Bible says there that a complaint arose. 
within the church. That's that word grumbling, murmuring, muttering. Again, it brings to, uh, to mind the idea of the, the, the murmuring of the Jews against Moses in the Old Testament. This is a serious problem that's happening here. After all, Jesus said in John 13, 35, that by this shall all men know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And so what did he teach? The evidence that I have been sent by the Father, the evidence that this group actually are following me and are empowered by my spirit will be the love that you have for each other. So when discord or disunity comes in and threatens that love, it goes right to the heart, strikes right to the heart of the church's testimony to the world that Jesus is real and that he's actually working on earth. So this is serious business here. It wasn't just the unity of the fellowship that was in danger, however. Look in verse 2 of Acts 6. The twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Not only was there a risk or a threat to the church unity, but there was a threat to church priorities. The apostles are saying there is a practical need here. There's widows who are being neglected. However, it's not right for us as apostles to leave the ministry of the word and prayer in order to see to this issue. Now, Remember, the needs of the widows was a real need. It was a legitimate function of the church to provide for those needs. Ensure that the widows have all the food they need. Ensure that they have even uh, the funds that they need. That was essential to the church's ministry. But the apostles are saying here in Acts 6-2 that in tending to those needs, it's essential that we maintain a balance of priorities. If the apostles were to spend their time overseeing and fulfilling the practical needs of the congregation, that would really call them to neglect what they viewed as their most important priorities, which was the ministry of prayer and preaching. That's not something the apostles here were willing to do. Prayer and the preaching of the word are the very means by which the gospel goes out. Prayer and preaching of the words are the, preaching of the word is the very means by which God produces spiritual growth. For the men whom God has called to prayer in preaching to give themselves to serving those practical needs would really be a misapplication of their gifts and an abdication of their calling. Again, that's not to say that the needs of the widows were illegitimate. They were very legitimate, and it's very much the function of the church to care for them. It is to say, however... That in this instance, some other than the apostles would have to be appointed to that task. And that's exactly what the church did. This also means that the ministry of caring for the practical needs of the congregation uh, was uh, very important as we see the action that they take. By ensuring that the widows receive their meals and the money and their care, uh, those who were seeing to those needs would actually be supporting the ministry of the word, by freeing up the apostles to give themselves to prayer and to preaching. So the passage continues there in verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. By the way, that tells us something about church organization. They knew how many disciples there were. They were able to call them all together. We're going to have a whole church meeting here, right? 
this need had affected only a small group within the church, uh, but there was no division here. This is a whole church problem. And so the whole number were gathered together. This is a church-wide problem, and it required a church-wide solution. And so it continues. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And it says there that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and these other men. Uh, and with that, the apostles wisely strengthened the unity of the church. Their solution was accepted by all the disciples, and it says what they, what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, the practical application here is what? We understand that according to Ephesians 4, which we'll get to in a moment, God has given men to the church to preach and teach and to lead. And according to Ephesians 4, as we're going to see, uh, those who are given to the church to teach and to preach and to lead are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that the saints actually carry out the very work that these men in Acts chapter 6 were to carry out. Although the apostles refused to leave the ministry of the word to work at satisfying those practical needs, it doesn't mean that those needs were unimportant. To bolster that claim, look at the caliber of men that they chose for the task. It says that these were men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. It's not as if you have the preaching of the word in prayer. And these are those, uh, those functions of the highest uh, value, and then you just have the menial tasks for anybody to do. That's not what's happening here. These men who were chosen for this task of caring for the widows were not spiritual slouches. It's not as if they were delegated menial tasks, but these were spiritual men entrusted with essential service. These seven men got to work right away, caring for the needs of the widows. And look at what the result was when qualified people were put to the task of serving the practical needs of the church in verse 5 through 7. It says, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, this passage begins with, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, and then there's a problem. And then they bring a solution to the problem, and then the passage ends with, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. I think this is very instructive for us. Growing, yes, But there's practical problems that arise as a result of the growth. And so let's move in and let's offer a solution to those problems. And then what? If we do it properly, continue to grow. That's the desire. The growing church, this growing church, needed a ministry to care for the practical needs of its members. And these men fulfilled it well. So what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that Calvary Baptist Church also needs a ministry 
to care for the practical needs of its members in order to bolster the ministry of the word uh, so that growth can continue. Now, some people believe in Acts chapter 6, these men who were chosen could be referred to as, anybody know? Deacons. Deacons. It's debatable whether or not that's accurate or not, but regardless of what you want to call them, the word deacon simply means servant. And one thing is sure, these men were servants of the church, meeting the practical needs of the people so as to help those who are ministering the word to not be distracted from their primary calling. That's exactly what they're doing. And the least what they did in serving the church was at least pattern setting for the office that would later be called the office of deacon. Either way, they're definitely examples for the deacons. But even beyond Acts chapter 2, we find this kind of sacrificial care which paid close attention to the practical needs of church members, especially those who are suffering. We see that becoming a hallmark of the church of Jesus Christ. After all, to show such mercy was simply to follow the example that Jesus left us. John said in John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John's saying this is just characteristic of genuine believers. How can you say the love of God is in you if you don't show love for one another? And John shows us that this becomes very, very practical. James also said, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Becomes very practical. For James, faith expressed without mercy was really no faith at all. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled. I mean, that's the classic thoughts and prayers. If someone says that without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Genuine faith is shown forth via works. And so this is characteristic of the church. Uh, a church that loves one another, thereby proving that they're disciples of Jesus. A church filled with men and women of faith, and a faith which works uh, not for salvation, but as a product of salvation. You know, it can sound very spiritual to put all the emphasis on the ministries of teaching and preaching while downplaying the care of people's practical needs. But according to James and John, to meet practical needs is spiritual service. A faith which is unwilling to help the suffering or sacrifice for those in need, uh, according to James, is a dead faith. There's really no faith at all. And so we can conclude that a church which is not actively organizing to meet the same sorts of needs is itself on thin spiritual ice. A growing church which is not careful to tend to the practical needs of its suffering or needy members is in danger of the same disunity that was threatening the church in Acts chapter 2. 
So, as we get into the epistles then, in the New Testament, and see God's lasting design for the church, we also see this pattern. We repeatedly see the congregation, not simply the leaders, charged with the task of ministering to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul wrote, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, who's he writing to? Brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. He's writing directly to the congregation. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So look at that passage and, and ask yourself, who's doing the stuff in 1 Thessalonians 5? Well, whoever he's writing to, uh, we know it's not those who are in leadership, because in verse 12 he says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Well, that's interesting, because then he says to the congregation, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's actually instruction for the, for the congregation. And encourage one another and build one another up. Interesting. Well, now look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16, a very seminal passage. Paul says, In Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. For what purpose did he give leaders to the church? For this purpose, to equip the saints. To equip the saints for what? to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What's the purpose of the work of the uh, what's the purpose of the work of the ministry? For the building up of the body of Christ. God gives leaders to the church to pray, to do the ministry of the word so that the saints could be equipped so that the saints can do the work of the ministry. That work of the ministry having that positive consequence then of building up the body of Christ? What does a body of Christ being built up look like? He continues, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does it look like when a church is being uh, growing up or into maturity? It looks like Christ-likeness. Spiritual maturity. He continues, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful scheme. Leadership for the church, giving themselves to the ministry of the word for the purpose of equipping the saints so the saints can do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry then resulting in the growth of the church in spiritual maturity and doctrinal stability, so you're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and so on. So, spiritual maturity, doctrinal stability, what else? Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Well, that speaks of love and it speaks of unity, spiritual maturity, doctrinal stability, loving unity. Verse 16, from which the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, spiritual leadership, giving to the church, focusing on the priorities of the ministry of the word and prayer, equipping the saints so the saints can do the work of the ministry. The product of that work of the ministry is that the church grows into Christ-likeness, spiritual maturity, doctrinal stability, loving unity, and what? I'm going to say universal ministry. Universal ministry. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. The idea is that of a body that has all these different members, and you get your arm, and you get your fingers, and you get your legs, and you get your knee, and you get your feet, and you get your toes, and you get your head, and you get your eyes. And when everything's working as it ought to be, the body's healthy. Universal ministry. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that's why if you've been through Membership Matters here at Calvary Baptist Church, and if you are a member, you have been through Membership Matters, uh, one of the things we emphasize is that we got to constantly battle against this prevalent view of church as really part of the service industry. What services do you offer? Uh, and those who are shopping around to find the church that has all the services that they want to partake in, this consumeristic mentality. But what we see in the New Testament is that a church is made up of a body of believers who together are committed to do what? Well, to persevere in their faith together, to build up one another, uh, but also simply to serve and to labor. That's the biblical model. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 4. So, pastors and teachers pray, labor in the word, teach and preach and counsel, while setting an example of service. They do all this with the aim of training and equipping church members to be able to come alongside one another and to minister. And so every member ought to, in some degree, to some degree, be a minister. According to Paul, when that arrangement is working properly, the church grows. It grows in spiritual maturity and doctrinal stability and loving unity and universal ministry. Further, we see that God has designed His church so that its members will minister to one another in a way... uh, in which utilizes the spiritual gifts that he's given for that very purpose. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Paul says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Every believer possessing the Holy Spirit has in some measure been giving a manifestation of that Spirit in the form of some spiritual gift which is to be used for the common good to the upbuilding of the church. You see that in Ephesians 4, in Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12. So Paul continues, If service, that is, if it's the gift of service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He's just listing different types of spiritual gifts. Service. Giving, mercy, faith, and so on. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And so, specifically there in Paul's list of spiritual gifts, we see a few which directly relate to the topic at hand. The idea of what I'm going to call a member care ministry. He mentions the gifts of service. He mentions the gift of of giving. And he mentions the gift of mercy. When Paul uses that term service there in Romans 12, 7, he's using the very same word from which we derive the term deacon. It's a broad word. encompasses the idea of ministering to the church by organizing and providing for the practical needs of the church. According to Paul, certain individuals are particularly gifted by God for such a purpose. So, this morning... We're going to take God at his word, and we're going to say, okay, we have a body of individuals here who are saved, who have the Holy Spirit. There's unity, but there's also diversity. Uh, there's a unity in that we all have one Father, there's one faith, we're all growing into one image of Christ, uh, we're a household, uh, uh, the household of God, so there's unity there. But there's also diverse, diversity by virtue of the differing gifts that we've been given. So represented here this morning, there are some who have gifts of service. There's some who have gifts of mercy. There's some who have gifts of giving. What I'm saying to you this morning is God would have you use your gifts practically within the church for its spiritual well-being. So, the fact that God has gifted some believers for that specific purpose of loving others through practical service and mercy and giving drives home the point that a well-functioning church not only must have a thriving word ministry carried out by those who are gifted for the task, but such a church must also have a robust mercy ministry which which has equally gifted believers working within it. So, let's summarize. What have we seen thus far? A growing church inevitably sees a growing list of needs among its members, which must be met. Next, an increase in people who need spiritual material or emotional care also increases the likelihood that some may feel neglected. Next, the failure to meet these needs has the potential to create disunity in the church. Next, Caring for the members of the church in times of need or distress is an essential function of the church. Next, although essential, the meeting of the practical needs of members should not cause those ministering the word to neglect their primary calling of ministering the word in prayer. Next, the way in which the needs of the church can be met and the ministry of the word can be protected is for some within the congregation to consider it their calling to organize and mobilize to care for one another. And lastly, a spirit-driven member care ministry like this will result in further growth and the advancement of the ministry of the Word. So with all that, the whole purpose of this this morning is to call Calvary Baptist Church to organize just such a ministry to serve these purposes.
Something, again, which we would call our member care ministry, a member care ministry. So I'm going to share with you, as we close, maybe a vision for such a ministry. And I'm asking you to pray about, to consider your own area of giftedness, to think about whether or not you would volunteer or perhaps even be the organizer of such a ministry. So let's lay out the vision for this. First of all, our mandate for a member care ministry. In light of Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, we recognize that a growing church will experience an increase in practical needs among its members, and the, the demands of these needs have the potential to distract or otherwise hinder the elders from carrying out their primary tasks of prayer in the ministry of the Word. For this reason, we believe that it's necessary for the members themselves, having been equipped by the elders for the task, to give themselves to the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4. We believe that when operating properly, a member care ministry will see the ministry of the Word supported and the overall health of the church increased. So that's our mandate. So what's our mission in all of this? To serve our fellow members sacrificially, bearing their burdens when they are weak, supplying their needs when they are without, offering empathy when they are suffering, understanding that meeting the practical needs of our members in need of mercy is a spiritual service and a powerful expression of the love which Christ has given to us and commanded that we express towards one another. So that's our mandate, and that's our mission. Our mindset in all of this. In in light of Acts 6, we believe that a member care ministry, while meeting practical needs, has an important spiritual impact. As we serve one another practically, we help sustain the unity and therefore the spiritual growth of the body. Our ministry is fundamental to the proper working of the church and essential in the support of the ministry of the word. So, then our method. We desire to be alert to the practical needs of our fellow church members with a focus on those who are suffering or facing difficulty and to either alleviate those needs ourselves or to oversee the delegation of it to those who are best suited for the purpose. As much as possible, we desire to address these needs uh, within the member care ministry uh, itself before escalating those practical needs to the level of elder involvement. So here's some examples of practical needs to be met by a member care ministry. Now, let's just note here, this is not a matter of elders saying, here, you do that work. Elders also need to be exemplary in carrying out the very same work, but not to the degree that it distracts from ministry of prayer and the word. So here's some examples. Comfort for the sick and recovering. Have you heard that somebody's been injured and is in the hospital? Do they need meals at home? Are they able to, uh, they're going to be suffering some financial loss because they're unable, because they've been uh, hurt, for instance? Well, there's a need the church can step in and help with. Empathy for the bereaved. Has somebody suffered loss? That maybe as the church grows, some of those things fall through the cracks. Not everybody knows that this has happened. Uh, so is there some way you can alert others in the congregation so that uh, care can be shown? Support for new mothers, for instance. Transportation for those who are in need. Visiting the hospital bound. Visiting the home bound. Caring for widows and elderly. Assessing financial needs. 
even practical things like caring for somebody who's unable to take care of their home properly uh, or their yard properly, for instance. So with that, I want to give you a profile of a person or people who might be gifted and oriented towards such a ministry. I'm going to call the person or persons in charge of the member care ministry, I'm going to call them the member care coordinator. And this could be one person, it could be multiple people. These are individuals who have gifts of service, who have gifts of mercy, and somewhat gifts of administration because it requires delegation. He or she is able to perceive the needs of others and to be sensitive to those needs. This person is unable to meet those needs or delegate the meeting of those needs to others. Because the member care coordinator or coordinators will in many instances be received as a representative of the church, these individuals need to have deacon-like qualities. And the Bible gives us the qualities of deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. And we'll go through those quickly. This is a serious-minded individual who is respectable. Because the member care ministry coordinator is primarily, because this ministry is primarily a mercy ministry, the members being served are likely dealing with trials or difficulties in life, and so they need to be handled gently. So the member care coordinator must possess a sober-minded, empathetic, and serious demeanor while interacting with those who are in need. Next of all, the member care coordinator or coordinators are not gossips. They're going to be privy to the struggles and needs of others, and so they must be discreet, must be careful not to share details that uh, need not be shared. Next of all, this individual is not addicted to mind-altering substances, not given to wine, for instance, which betrays the reputation of self-control or sober-mindedness. Next of all, this individual is not greedy for money, but has a spirit of generosity and sacrifice. Next of all, they hold firmly to sound doctrine. Next, they've proven themselves to seek out and thrive in spiritual service. Not everyone's cut out for this type of service. These are individuals who may be working behind the scenes, not a lot of notoriety, uh, but there is a fulfillment and a satisfaction that comes from exercising gifts of service. Next of all, they're morally pure an example of sexual purity, whether single or married. Next of all, their family life is one which can be imitated. And all those things are simply what the Bible presents us as the qualifications of deacons. So the ideal member care coordinator, and it may be you this morning, will go out of their way to know the congregation and to be sensitive to the needs as they arise. I mean, have you noticed as Calvary Baptist Church has grown that there's some people in this room right now that you haven't met yet? I know that's the case. And we're not a big church, but we're already to that point where I'll talk to somebody and mention somebody's name and say, oh, I don't, they've been attending six months and still don't know somebody who generally just sits three rows in front of them. Uh, if, if we have those issues now, we're going to have those issues increasingly. But the member care coordinator is someone who purposefully seeks to know people and kind of has their hand on the pulse of the church, understands when somebody's suffering, understands when somebody loses their job, knows when somebody uh, uh, has some other need. So this is an individual who's sensitive to the needs as they arise. 
It says somebody who's involved, who understands uh, or is familiar with the struggles of individuals. This cannot be somebody who's always on the fringes and uh, doesn't know the congregation. This is someone who has a sensitivity to the needs of the church, which crosses all social and racial and age boundaries. This is not somebody who shows partiality. This is not somebody who is involved in cliques in the church. This is somebody who reaches outside their own social circle. Further, since the ultimate aim of the member care ministry is to support the ministry of the word, the ideal member care coordinator will have a good relationship with the elders. He or she exercises good judgment in deciding what needs can be dealt with just at the level of the ministry and which which ones need to rise to the elders. All in all, the member care coordinator is a godly individual who's devoted to the Lord, loyal to the church, submissive to leaders, and loving and merciful towards others. As a coordinator, these qualities will be complemented by an ability to organize and to delegate to others. So, for instance, we have a member care ministry. There may be a ministry within the member care ministry, uh, someone who organizes meals to be delivered to somebody who's had a child or who's in the hospital. Uh, the member care coordinator can delegate to such an individual, right? So the coordinator's not doing all these things, but knows how to delegate. Both member care coordinator and workers should believe that they have the gift of service. That is, they're comfortable serving behind the scenes without much fanfare. They don't need the spotlight. They don't need commendation. Instead, they're satisfied meeting practical needs. So you have the coordinator. You also have the worker. The member care worker is someone gifted for selfless service. She has an empathetic heart, a desire to relieve suffering or to meet the needs of those who require it. She's someone who's prone to show mercy towards others and not judgment. So in conclusion, it's our conviction that the New Testament establishes this pattern. It establishes a pattern for the church. Whereas the early church implemented a member care ministry when the grumbling started, we'd probably do well to establish a member care ministry before the grumbling starts. If we don't, we should recognize that we face the same potential threat to church unity and the priority of the ministry of the word as the New Testament church did. So how can you get involved? If you feel you possess the character qualities of an ideal member care worker or coordinator, make yourself known. Talk to Jared. Talk to me. Uh, Some of you might recognize all this because we presented this probably over a year ago. Uh, And it hasn't gotten off the ground since then, but we've added quite a few members since that time. And uh, if you feel that this is your area of giftedness and this is something you'd like to be a part of, make yourself known. Talk to us about that. And uh, we have some other kind of instructional material to share with you. If you feel you possess the character qualities, the desire, the giftedness, uh, then come talk to us. When we feel that we have a group who can make the member care ministry work, well, then we'll establish some type of orientation meeting and talk through all the ministry details. So as we close, let's remember that the member care ministry is simply our way of fulfilling that New Testament pattern. We're not inventing anything here. It's not novel. Simply saying, as we grow, recognize what we ought to be doing as a church, exactly what the New Testament church did. And all of this, our desire is to fulfill what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love, have love for one another. Jesus loved us, has shown mercy to us, 
has unified us with one another through his Holy Spirit. He now asks that we live that out practically. The member care ministry is simply a practical means to do just that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe a little bit odd for you to hear all this talk. Ultimately, what we're seeking to do as Christ followers is to be the church as he designed it. And what we believe is that when we function this way, we're actually showing Jesus to the world. And this morning, maybe by hearing some of this, you're hearing you're not a Christian, maybe in some small way, this helps you to see the love of Jesus uh, as we as a church seek to love one another. Uh, I hope that's the case and that you'll see your need for Christ as your own Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would continue to provide for Calvary Baptist Church. Lord, we believe that this is growth that you have produced. And so then help us simply to be submissive to you and your design for the church. We're not seeking to be novel here. We're not seeking to invent something. We're not seeking to use our own human wisdom or ingenuity to grow the church. Uh, Lord, we just want to be submissive to your pattern. And this is one area in which we feel that uh, perhaps we're lacking. So help us as we grow to more and more reflect your design. We pray that you lay it on the hearts of individuals in a congregation like this. And the diversity of gifts that we know exist. We Certainly, there's individuals here who have the gift of service, the gift of mercy, uh, that you could mobilize uh, to serve the church. So we pray that you lay it upon the hearts of individuals, help them to pray about these things. Um, and we pray that we could see this ministry started, operating well, um, supporting the ministry of the word, and uh, resulting in spiritual maturity and the doctrinal stability and loving unity and universal ministry within the church. So we pray that you'll grow us that way. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.